This episode of Do You Want to Hear a Story is intended for adult audiences. It may contain graphic descriptions and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. At one point in our lives, we have all heard the story about the day JFK was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. There have been countless movies, books, articles and documentaries about that fateful day in 1963, but one question still remains. Who killed JFK? Do you want to hear a story? Will you give a few seconds of your time? Good evening, folks. Kennedy can die. Atomic power plant in the city of Kiev was damaged. How do you measure such an astonishing moment in history? The energy crisis. We're gathered in South Do you want to hear my story? There have been many events in our lives which are the where were you moments. Um, just off the top of my head, I could think of a few. Um, the death of Elvis was definitely probably one of those moments. Uh, the moon landing, 9 11. Uh, and when I was talking to my dad about this event of the JFK assassination in 1963, he mentioned as well that apparently back in the day, uh, the Charles and Diana wedding was one of those moments. So I guess, quick question, is there any other of those moments you can think of that stack up with, I guess, those four in terms of where were you when and do you remember the situation and where were you? I would probably say the death of Princess Diana. Definitely, that's definitely one. I remember that morning as well, yep. But for my lifetime, the massive world-shaping events, I'd probably say, yeah, the death of Princess Diana and then 9-11, those are, those are two very prominent yeah. moments that you can remember, even though that was some time ago now. Exactly. Um, well, contrary to many reports that are out there, I was not alive in 1963. Mm, okay. uh, but, my da- but my dad actually was. He was 15 years old. He was attending boarding school at Shoreham Grammar, which is now known as Shoreham College in England. And he tells me, just to you know, follow on on this topic, that it was 7pm the night of the 22nd of November 1963 and he was lining up in the dining room ready for supper and a few of the boys in his grade or in the school would have had what they call back in the day a transistor radio. <laughs> so... so which for those of you out there that have never heard the term transistor radio, the abbreviated term of a transistor radio used to be called a tranny. Mm. One boy heard the news on the transistor radio and then it spread like wildfire. And then I asked my dad, I said, was it one of those things where people that were glued, you know, you were glued to the TV because using the 9-11 example, I just remember that everyone was just glued. Well, you couldn't, you had no choice really because every network was covering it basically for days. Regular programming stopped. Um, and yeah, he said in the times where you were allowed your free time, obviously it's boarding school, so you don't get a ton of free time, but the time when you're allowed your free time, that's all people were listening to or watching was, was, the, uh, was the JFK story. So that's a short story about my dad's experience about this event in 1963. So John Fitzgerald Kennedy, often referred to as JFK, his friends and close associates used to also call him Jack. He was the 35th president of the United States from January 1961 until his assassination in November in 1963. Graduated from Harvard University in 1940 before he joined the US Naval Reserve the following year. 
in World War II, he commanded a series of PT boats in the Pacific Theater and earned the Navy and Marine Corps Medal for his service. President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas at 12.30 p.m. Central Standard Time on Friday, the 22nd of November, 1963. So by the time you hear this podcast, it will be going on for 57 years since that event. A lot of people will ask why he was in Texas at the time. He was in Texas on a political trip to smooth over frictions in the Democratic Party between the Liberals Ralph Yarbrough and Don Yarbrough. Um, it says parenthetically that Don and Ralph were not related. Uh, and the conservative John Connolly. Uh, he was traveling in a presidential motorcade through downtown Dallas. He was shot once in the back, the bullet exiting via his throat, and once in the head. So just on that bit of information, you've, everyone probably has seen the Sapruda footage of... You've seen the Sapruda footage of the time when Kennedy got shot, I'm guessing. Mm. And everyone knows who's watched that footage knows the famous phrase, back and to the left. Mm. Yep. So straight away, anyone with any sense in their brain would think to themselves, two shooters. It's just interesting, I guess, for the people listening to this story who may not be across all of the ins and outs of this story, that they just keep that in mind, that if you shot once in the back... And if you shot once in the f- in the head, where your head goes back into the left, it's pretty easy to deduce that there was two shooters. So I just want all the listeners out there to keep that in the back of their mind, because this podcast is about all the information which leads us to, I guess, you know, think about us collecting a cast of suspects in the murder or the assassination of JFK. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, Presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States. Right, so the first one of our suspects is... Lee Harvey Oswald. So about 45 minutes after assassinating Kennedy, I should probably add in there after allegedly assassinating Kennedy, Oswald shot and killed Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett on a local street. He then slipped into a movie theatre where he was arrested for Tippett's murder. Oswald was eventually charged with the assassination of Kennedy. I'm going to add another interesting fact. Oswald was charged with Tippett's murder at 7pm Dallas time. Now, that just happens to be 2 p.m. the next day, New Zealand time. But already, their papers had the history of Lee Harvey Oswald as the man, the wanted man, for killing the president. Did you kill the president? No, I've not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet. Uh, The first thing I heard about it was when the newspaper reporters in the hall uh, asked me that question. You have been. Nobody said what? Sir? You have been. Nobody said what? Okay, man. Okay. What did you do in Russia? So Oswald denied the accusation, stating that he was a patsy. Two days later, Oswald was fatally shot by local nightclub owner Jack Ruby on live television in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. Here he comes. Now the prisoner wearing a white sweater. 
Let me have it. I want it. Being let out by uh, Captain Fritz. There is a person. There is Lee. He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun. Absolute panic. Absolute panic here in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. Detectives have their guns drawn. There is no question about it. Oswald has been shot at point blank range, fired into his stomach. He is shot. He is shot. Oswald is shot. It is Oswald. You're on. So I think it's important now that we talk about what was going on in the world, which may have had some bearing on who or why President Kennedy was assassinated. So we need to talk about Vietnam and the Vietnam War, because this is probably one of the key central times of American history, which is, I guess, surrounding this event of the president being assassinated. So just to give you some context, as a congressman in 1951, Kennedy became fascinated with Vietnam after visiting the area as part of a fact-finding mission to Asia and the Middle East, even stressing in a subsequent radio address that he strongly favoured, quote-unquote, checking the southern drive of communism. Mm. Communism is going to play a, a key role in this story. As a senator in 1956, Kennedy publicly advocated for greater US involvement in Vietnam. During his presidency, Kennedy continued policies that provided political, economic, and military support to the governments of South Korea and South Vietnam. This is a quote from Kennedy. We have one million Americans today serving outside the United States. There's no other country in history that's carried this kind of burden. Other countries have had forces serving outside their own country, but for conquest, we have two divisions in South Korea, not to control South Korea, but to defend it. We have a lot of Americans in South Vietnam. Well, no other country in the world has ever done that since the beginning of the world. Greece, Rome, Napoleon, and all the rest always had conquest. We have a million men outside and they try to defend these countries. So I think from that quote, it paints a bit of a picture as that Kennedy's not one of these you know, war-loving presidents that just loves going into other countries and stirring up shit by the sound of things. Fair to say, yeah? Yeah, I think so. Historians disagree on whether the Vietnam War would have escalated if Kennedy had not been assassinated and had won re-election in 1964. Fueling that debate were statements made by Secretary of Defense McNamara in the film The Fog of War that Kennedy was strongly considering pulling the United States out of Vietnam after the 1964 election. Now, this part of the information here is key to sowing some seeds of doubt about who might be responsible for killing the president and that'll make sense as we go through the podcast mm -hmm. the film also contains a tape recording of lyndon johnson stating that kennedy was planning to withdraw a position in which johnson disagreed so you've got the president wanting to withdraw troops out of vietnam and lyndon johnson going no we can't do that Kennedy had signed National Security Action Memorandum 263, dated the 11th of October, which ordered the withdrawal of 1,000 military personnel by the end of the year and the bulk of them out by the end of 1965. Such an action would have been a policy reversal, but Kennedy was publicly moving in a less hawkish direction since his speech on world peace 
at American University on the 10th of June, 1963. I have chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived. And that is the most important topic on earth, peace. I speak of peace because of the new face of war. Total war makes no sense in an age where great powers can maintain large and relatively invulnerable nuclear forces and refuse to surrender without resort to those forces. It makes no sense in an age where a single nuclear weapon contains almost 10 times the explosive force delivered by all the Allied Air Forces in the Second World War. It makes no sense in an age when the deadly poisons produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the globe and a generation yet unborn. To secure these ends, high-level discussions will shortly begin in Moscow, looking towards early agreement on a comprehensive test ban treaty to make clear our good faith and solemn convictions on this matter, I now declare that the United States does not propose to conduct nuclear tests in the atmosphere so long as other states do not do so. The United States, as the world knows, will never start a war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough more than enough of war and hate and oppression. No government or social system is so evil that its people must be considered as lacking in virtue. As Americans, we find communism profoundly repugnant as a negation of personal freedom and dignity. But we can still hail the Russian people for their many achievements in science and space in economic and industrial growth, in culture, in acts of courage. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal. On June 10, 1963, Kennedy delivered the commencement address at American University in Washington, D.C also known as a strategy of peace. Not only did the president outline a plan to curb nuclear arms, but he also laid out a hopeful yet realistic route for world peace at a time when the US and Soviet Union faced the potential for an escalating nuclear arms race. This is what the president wished. To discuss a topic on which too often ignorance abounds and the truth is too rarely perceived, yet it is the most important topic on earth, world peace. I speak of peace because of the new face of war in an age when a single nuclear weapon contains 10 times the explosive force delivered by all the allied forces in the Second World War. An age when the deadly poisons produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and air and soil and seed to the far corners of the globe and to generations yet unborn. I speak of peace 
therefore, as the necessary rational end of rational men. World peace, like community peace, does not require that each man love his neighbour, it requires only that they live together in mutual tolerance. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. So, who would want someone like Kennedy killed? Well, it definitely feels like he's going against the grain of what the the American government might might want. You know, he seems to be kind of making a lot of individual decisions that, like you said before, wouldn't necessarily be in line with how other presidents have and, and will act. That's fair. I'm going to give you some numbers about the defence budget. During the time of war, the defence budget was 75 to $100 billion. And it was... In my research, it found out that over $200 billion would have been spent mm. on the war. <laughs> so back if you then. think of defense budget, exactly back then. So if you think of defense budget, you think of everything and that, that entails. Tanks, helicopters, arms, whatever, everything, right? That means there's people out there getting paid big contracts to manufacture all of those things. In 1949, when there was no war, the defense budget was $10 billion. Yeah, right. So in any business, because arms is a business, if someone tells you that they're going to do something drastic that's going to cut your cash, you're going to be a bit upset, right? Yeah, I think that's a fair, th- fair thing to say. I mean, it's hard to for myself to picture potentially assassinating a president because my income was affected but i can understand someone might decide to do that or i mean yeah your individual income yes but we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars Mm. Mm. so that's just something to ponder during that speech at american university the president made two announcements that the soviets had expressed a desire to negotiate a nuclear test ban treaty and number two that the US had postponed planned atmospheric tests. So basically, we're not gonna do any nuclear testing and we're signing a deal with the Soviets that says they're not gonna do any nuclear testing either. Sounds like positive steps. Positive steps, yes. To, to the layman, you and I, yeah, that sounds great. If you and I believe in world peace, that's news we wanna hear. Mm. But we also have to remember that he's doing a deal with communist Soviet Union. At the time of his death, no final policy decision was made to Vietnam. In 2008, Theodore Sorensen wrote, I would like to believe that Kennedy would have found a way to withdraw all American instructors and advisor from Vietnam. But I do not believe he knew in his last weeks what he was going to do. Sorensen also added that in his opinion, Vietnam was the only foreign policy problem handed off by JFK to his successor in no better and possibly worse shape than it was when he inherited it. US involvement in the region escalated until his successor, Lyndon Johnson, directly deployed regular US military forces for fighting the Vietnam War. After Kennedy's assassination, and this is crucial, President Johnson signed his own national security memo, number 273, on the 26th of November, 1963, mind you, four days after the death, right? 
It reversed Kennedy's decision to withdraw a thousand troops and reaffirmed the policy of assistance to the South Vietnamese. How many men who listen to me tonight have served their nation in other wars? How very many are not here to listen? The war in Vietnam is not like these other wars. Yet, finally, war is always the same. It is young men dying in the fullness of their promise. It is trying to kill a man that you do not even know well enough to hate. Therefore, to know war is to know that there is still madness in this world. We have children to teach, and we have sick to be cured, and we have men to be freed. There are poor to be lifted up, and there are cities to be built, and there's a world to be helped. Yet, we do what we must. I am hopeful, and I will try with best I can with everything I've got to end this battle and to return our sons to their desires. Yet, as long as others will challenge America's security and test the dearness of our beliefs with fire and steel, then we must stand or see the promise of two centuries tremble. President Kennedy's foreign policy was dominated by American confrontations with the Soviet Union manifested by proxy contests in the early stage of the Cold War. In 1961, he anxiously anticipated a summit with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. He started off on the wrong foot by reacting aggressively to a routine Khrushchev speech on Cold War confrontation in 1961. The speech was intended for domestic audiences in the Soviet Union, but Kennedy interpreted it as a personal challenge his mistake helped raise tensions going into the Vienna summit of June 1961. On his way to that summit, Kennedy stopped in Paris to meet French President Charles de Gaulle. I should add parenthetically that Charles de Gaulle around about this time was also the target of an assassination attempt. So you can, for those listening, you can read on the assassination attempt on Charles de Gaulle's life. He advised him to ignore Khrushchev's abrasive style. The French president feared the United States presumed influence in Europe. Nevertheless, de Gaulle was quite impressed with the young president and his family. Kennedy picked up on this in his speech in Paris, saying that he would remember it as the man who accompanied Jackie Kennedy to Paris. On the 4th of June, 61, the president met with Khrushchev in Vienna and left the meetings angry and disappointed that he had allowed the premier to bully him, despite the warnings he had received. Khrushchev, for his part, was impressed with the president's intelligence, but thought him weak. Unlike another president who I no won't name, who we think to be quite unintelligent, but he thinks he's rather strong. But anyway, we'll leave that by the way. Kennedy did succeed in conveying the bottom line to Khrushchev on the most sensitive issue before them, a proposed treaty between Moscow and East Berlin. 
he made it clear that any treaty interfering with US access rights in West Berlin would be regarded as an act of war. So you have to remember, back in the day, this was where there was East Berlin, West Berlin, and very soon the Berlin Wall's about to go up. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Good evening. Seven weeks ago tonight, I returned from Europe to report on my meeting with Premier Khrushchev and the others. His grim warnings about the future of the world, his aid memoir on Berlin, the subsequent speeches and threats which he and his agents have launched, and the increase in the Soviet military budget that he has announced have all prompted a series of decisions by the administration and a series of consultations with the members of the NATO organization. In Berlin, as you recall, he intends to bring to an end, through a stroke of the pen, first, our legal rights to be in West Berlin, and secondly, our ability to make good on our commitments to two million people of that city. That we cannot permit. We are clear about what must be done, and we intend to do it, I want to talk frankly with you tonight about the first steps that we shall take. These actions will require sacrifice on the part of many of our citizens. More will be required in the future. They will require from all of us courage and perseverance in the years to come. Shortly after the president returned home, the USSR announced its plan to sign a treaty with East Berlin abrogating any third-party occupation rights in either sector of the city. Depressed and angry, Kennedy assumed that his only option was to prepare the country for nuclear war, which he personally thought had a one in five chance of occurring. In the weeks immediately following the Vienna summit, more than 20,000 people fled from East Berlin to the Western sector, reacting to statements from the USSR. Kennedy began intensive meetings on the Berlin issue where Dean Acheson took the lead in recommending a military build-up alongside NATO allies. In a July 1961 speech, Kennedy announced his decision to add $3.25 billion, equivalent to $27.81 billion in 2019, just for some context, to the defence budget along with over 200,000 additional troops, stating that an attack on West Berlin would be an attack taken as an attack on the US. The speech received an 85% approval rating. So if you think of world politics and the president comes along and says, I'm just gonna give the defense budget another $3.25 billion. If you're a defense contractor, you're rubbing your hands. Mm. You love war. Absolutely. War's your business. That's yeah, it. war's your business. There's a, there's a line from Donald Sutherland in the Oliver Stone movie, JFK, where he says, the organizing principle of any government is war. Mm. War's a moneymaker. Yeah, absolutely it is. $10 billion defense budget in 1949, no war, no one's, get, no one's getting paid. He's just injected $3.25 billion into the defense budget to build up military alongside NATO in West Berlin. A month later, both the Soviet Union and East Berlin began blocking any further passage of East Berliners into West Berlin and erected barbed wire fences across the city, which were quickly upgraded to the Berlin Wall. Kennedy's initial reaction was to ignore this, as long as free access from West to East Berlin continued. 
This course was altered when West Berliners had lost confidence in the defense of their position by the United States. Kennedy sent then Vice President Lyndon Johnson along with a host of military personnel in convoy through West Germany, including Soviet armed checkpoints, to demonstrate the continued commitment of the US to West Berlin. So if you're living in the world in 1961, what do you like what do you view John Kennedy as? What's John Kennedy's standing around the world? It's I guess it's hard to say, but I, I would assume that the everyday man doesn't want war. He wants No, the everyday man doesn't. He wants someone in power who's has the ability to enact change and you know because that's I think the most basic thought when you think of a leader probably not so much these days but once upon a time a leader was someone who made a decision put a plan in place and then there was an outcome now obviously we don't have that it's a lot of you know a lot of promises that don't get ever <laughs> yeah completed but I think I, I suppose if you're you know back in 61 you're looking at Kennedy as maybe a guy who's actually trying to get something done Mm. It's also important to add that he won the election by little more than 100,000 votes. He only got into power on the back of an election victory where he barely won. So if you're thinking about this from, uh, you know, party perspective and partisanship, there's a guy there that a lot of people didn't want to be there. And plus, he's such a young guy. I think there was probably a lot of people that wanted him to fail as well. Exactly. If the nations of this hemisphere should fail to meet their commitments against outside communist penetration, then I want it clearly understood that this government will not hesitate in meeting its primary obligations, which are to the security of our nation. Should that time ever come, we do not intend to be lectured on intervention by those whose character was stamped for all time on the bloody streets of Budapest. It is clear that the forces of communism are not to be underestimated in Cuba or anywhere else in the world. The advantages of a police state, its use of mass terror and arrest to prevent the spread of free dissent cannot be overlooked by those who expect the fall of every fanatic tyrant. If the self-discipline of the free cannot match the iron discipline of the mailed fist in economic, political, scientific, and all the other kinds of struggle, as well as the military, then the peril of freedom will continue to rise. Secondly, it is clear that this nation in concert with all the free nations of this hemisphere, must take an ever closer and more realistic look at the menace of external communist intervention and domination in Cuba. The American people are not complacent about Iron Turk curtain tanks and planes less than 90 miles from their shore. But a nation of Cuba's size is less a threat to our survival then it is a base for subverting the survival of other free nations throughout the hemisphere. It is not primarily our interest or our security, but theirs, 
which is now today in the greater peril. It is for their sake, as well as our own, that we must show our will. When I was talking to my dad about his memories of where was he when he found out the president's been shot, he actually mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis as almost one of those moments where the world was kind of like on edge. On October 14, 1962, CIA U-2 spy planes took photographs of the Soviets' construction of intermediate-range ballistic missile sites in Cuba. It's, in, it's important for me to add, Cuba is 90 miles from Florida. The photos were shown to Kennedy on the 16th of October. A consensus was reached that the missiles were offensive in nature and thus posed an immediate nuclear threat. Just think of those words, immediate nuclear threat. Mm. Kennedy faced a dilemma. If the US attacked the sites, it might lead to nuclear war with the USSR. But if the US did nothing, it would be faced with the increased threat from close range nuclear weapons. So if you do nothing, they're just always gonna be there. The US would also appear on the world as less committed to the defense of the hemisphere. On a personal level, Kennedy needed to show resolve in reaction to Khrushchev, especially after the Vienna summit. General, what about if the Soviet Union, uh, Khrushchev announces uh, tomorrow, which I think he will, that if we attack Cuba, that uh, it's going to be nuclear war. Uh, and uh, what's your judgment as to uh, the chances they'll fire these things off if we invade Cuba? Oh, uh, I don't believe they will. You don't think they will? No. In other words, you would take that risk if the situation seems no. desirable. As a matter of fact, uh, what can you do? Uh -huh. uh, you, if this thing is such a uh, serious thing uh, here on our flank, that uh, we're going to be uneasy, and we know what this thing is happening now. All right, you've got to use something. Right. Something may uh, make these people shoot them off. I just don't believe this will. Yeah, all right. Well, <laughs> in any event, of course, I'll say this. I want to keep my own people very alert. Yeah. <laughs> no, hang on tight. Yes, sir. Thanks a lot, General. All right. All right. All right. More than a third of the U.S. National Security Council members favored an unannounced air assault on the missile sites. So a third of the people on this council have gone, yeah, let's, let's attack them. But for some of them, this conjured up an image of Pearl Harbor in reverse. There was also some concern from the international community, asked in confidence, I add parenthetically, that the assault plan was an overreaction in light of the fact that Eisenhower had placed PGM-19 Jupiter missiles in Italy and Turkey only four years ago in 1958. It also could not be assured that the assault would be 100% effective. In concurrence with a majority vote of the NSC, Kennedy decided on a naval quarantine. On October 22nd, he dispatched a message to Khrushchev and announced the decision on TV. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Only last Thursday, as evidence of this rapid offensive buildup was already in my hand, Soviet Foreign Minister Gromyko told me in my office 
that he was instructed to make it clear once again, as he said his government had already done, that Soviet assistance to Cuba, and I quote, pursued solely the purpose of contributing to the defense capabilities of Cuba, unquote. That, and I quote him, training by Soviet specialists of Cuban nationals in handling defensive armaments was by no means offensive. And that if it were otherwise, Mr. Gamico went on, the Soviet government would never become involved in rendering such assistance, unquote. That statement also was false. Acting, therefore, in the defense of our own security and of the entire Western Hemisphere, and under the authority entrusted to me by the Constitution, as endorsed by the resolution of the Congress, I have directed that the following initial steps be taken immediately. To halt this offensive buildup, a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba is being initiated. All ships of any kind bound for Cuba, from whatever nation or port, will they found to contain cargoes of offensive weapons be turned back. Shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to haul and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace and to stable relations between our two nations. I call upon him further to abandon this course of world domination and to join in an historic effort to end the perilous arms race and to transform the history of man. Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right. Not peace at the expense of freedom, but both peace and freedom here in this hemisphere and we hope around the world, God willing, that goal will be achieved. The US Navy would stop and inspect all Soviet ships arriving off Cuba, beginning the 24th of October. The Organization of American States gave unanimous support to the removal of the missiles. The president exchanged two sets of letters with Khrushchev to no avail. United Nations Secretary-General Yu Thant requested both parties to reverse their decisions and enter a cooling-off period. Khrushchev agreed, but Kennedy didn't. One Soviet-flagged ship was stopped and boarded. On the 28th of October, Khrushchev agreed to dismantle the missile sites, subject to UN inspections. The US publicly promised never to invade Cuba and privately agreed to remove its Jupiter missiles from Italy and Turkey which were by then obsolete and had been supplanted by submarines equipment with UGM-27 Polaris missiles. This crisis brought the world closer to nuclear war than at any point before or after. It is considered that the humanity of both Khrushchev and Kennedy prevailed. The crisis improved the image of American willpower and the president's credibility. Kennedy's approval rating increased from 66% to 77% immediately thereafter. So if you don't want Kennedy to be president, whether or not you're a Republican in America, you don't agree with the way he runs the country, or if you're any one of world leaders that would wish that there was somebody else running the country other than Kennedy, because let's face it, the American president 
deals differently with certain world leaders depending on what their ideals are and their ideology is, yeah? So at this point in time, we could probably amass a pretty vast array of characters who, okay, they might not want to assassinate Kennedy, yeah? But they wouldn't be too upset if he was gone. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that there was quite a few people that might not actively be pulling the trigger, but they would be quietly hoping someone was pulling the trigger. Mm, mm. And when you're talking about billions of dollars and geopolitics and all that kind of stuff, there's not a lot of exit ramps between wishing that somebody else was president and, hey, what if we just got rid of him? Mm. As I said, it happens all the time. Like, you, brought, you don't, probably don't hear about the assassination of President X and Prime Minister X from country that no one really cares about, but when the American president's shot, it garners a whole bunch of attention. This 36-foot armed invasion launch with its crew of 17 anti-Castro raiders is taken into custody in the Bahamas. The one American arrested by the British, 24-year-old Jerry Buchanan, swears that his group will continue its raids until Cuba is free. The 16 Cubans aboard are arrested, then released. Buchanan is asked to leave the islands. This seizure and the preventing of a similar boat from leaving Miami are first moves in a new Anglo-American policy of halting hit-and-run raids on Cuba and on ships in her waters. In Washington, at his regular news conference, President Kennedy answers the seeming paradox of opposing Castro by discouraging such an impromptu attack. He compares it with better-reasoned liberation efforts. I contrast that with some others. For example, uh, between four and 500 members of the brigade who were prisoners who were at the Bay of Pigs have joined the United States Army. 200 as officers, 250 as men who are now in training and who I think will be uh, very fine uh, soldiers and can uh, serve uh, the common cause. We distinguish between those actions which we feel advances the cause of freedom and these hit and run raids which we do not feel advance the cause of freedom and we're attempting to discourage those. And we need to talk about the involvement, potential involvement, I should say, from the mob and the CIA. And I'm gonna read to you a document. This is from the National Examiner. It was dated the 9th of June, 1975, and it was approved for release on the 1st of the 11th or the 11th of the 1st, 2005 by the CIA. And the, the document's titled Mafia and CIA Linked in JFK Murder. Did the Mafia and CIA conspire in the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 63? And did the ill-fated president seal his own doom with a decision he had made several months before? New evidence now appears to support the credibility of this astounding theory concerning JFK's murder in Dallas. Members of America's top secret spy organization and known trigger men for the mafia were reportedly observed on the scene when the fatal shooting took place. Several CIA agents and at least one member of the mafia were allegedly taken into custody shortly after the shooting ceased, but were quickly released by the Dallas police. It has never been ascertained just why they happened to be at that particular spot when JFK was brutally cut down. Few experts believe that Lee Harvey Oswald could have fired all the shots which poured into the president's open convertible. There's another question. Why was the limousine open to the public? 
That's a good point. Many are now convinced that he was simply a patsy who was set up to take the blame for a carefully planned execution. They believe he was telling the truth when he insisted that he was not involved in the assassination. The popular theory now is that Oswald himself was eliminated to keep his lips sealed. There's only one way to permanently keep someone quiet. Mm. His killer, a nightclub operator, Jack Ruby, was known to have close associates among underworld figures. Witnesses claim photographs prove that former CIA agents E. Howard Hunt, convicted Watergator, and Frank Sturgis were president when JFK was slain. Also identified in a photo of those nearby the presidential motorcade was a parolee with a criminal record as long as your arm. Eugene Hale Brading, with a record dating back to 1934, was allegedly an associate of James the Weasel Fratiano, a well-known mafia figure linked to gangland killings who was then of the Smaldens family of Denver, Colorado. In 1963, Brading was living in Los Angeles on parole at the time. He claimed to be an oil prospector and obtained permission from his parole officer to visit Dallas on a business trip. He was scheduled to be in Dallas only for the day of November 21, according to records. He was supposed to be in Houston on the 22nd of November, the day JFK was shot. Why did he stay on in Dallas? It is known he did visit the offices of a huge oil company on the 21st. It was later admitted by Jack Ruby that he visited those offices on the same day. Did they know each other and did they meet by a prearranged plan? And did they speak of the assassination which was to take place the following day? Ruby told the Warren Commission that he visited the Hunt Oil Company offices on the 21st of November to get a job for an attractive co-ed named Connie Trammell. The commission did not connect Ruby's visit with Brading's, um, but Brading's given a phony name and story when questioned by the FBI just after the shooting. This coincidence did not come to light until years later through the efforts of concerned private citizens headed by Dallas pharmaceutical salesman Al Chapman. It is now learned that JFK may have incurred the wrath of the CIA and underworld figures because of the touchy Cuban situation at the time. The young president allegedly discussed the possible assassination of Cuban Premier Fidel Castro with a close friend, Senator George A. Smathers of Florida in 61 and 62. He absolutely refused to consider the suggestion, although it is now being learned that the CIA had been linked with assassination attempts throughout the Caribbean for years. The conversations between JFK and Smathers are allegedly contained in the oral history archives of the Kennedy Library. This is in quotes. As I recollect, Smathers began, Kennedy was throwing out a real barrage of questions. He was certain that, that it could be accomplished. I'm guessing they're talking about the assassination of Castro. The question was whether or not it would accomplish that which he wanted to do. Whether or not the reaction through the South America would be good or bad and how the American people would react. Would it be gratifying? So that's from an article 
from the National Examiner, which finds, I guess, circumstantial evidence at this stage. For those of you listening to the podcast, you only have to do a Google search on Operation Mongoose. Have you heard of Operation Mongoose? No, I can't say I have. Okay, so Operation Mongoose was a black ops operation situated out of Florida. Right. So black ops are basically coups, rigging elections, assassinating world leaders, all that kind of shit. It's interesting to note a few other notes about what was going on at the time of the shooting, literally at the time of the shooting. So the entire cabinet was on a trip to the Far East, so they were out of the country. One third of the combat division returning from Germany was in the air at the time of the shooting. At 12.34 p.m., the entire telephone system in Washington went out for a solid hour. He was shot at 12.30. And on the plane back to Washington, word was radioed from the Washington Situations Room to Lyndon Johnson that one individual performed the assassination. All very neat and tidy, no? Mm. All very neat and tidy. I'm going to end with some findings from the Warren Commission. So the Warren Commission was the, I guess, the investigation into what really happened. For those of you that want to Google search the Warren Commission, you can find out about one of the members of the Warren Commission. His name was Alan Dulles. He was previously fired by John Kennedy, and he's on the commission investigating his death. In September 1964, the Warren Commission concluded that Oswald acted alone when he assassinated Kennedy by firing three shots from the Texas School Book Depository. This conclusion, though controversial, was supported by previous investigations from the FBI, the Secret Service, and the Dallas Police Department. Despite, and I'm going to put in brackets or quotes, forensic, ballistic, and eyewitness evidence supporting the official findings, Public opinion polls have shown that most Americans do not believe the official version of the events. I'm going to ask you on the podcast. I can't ask the listeners. There's too many of them and I don't know all their names. Do you believe that version of events? Oh, it's, it's so involved and there's just so many potential suspects, I think. No, but do you believe the, the version of the events that the Warren Commission's putting forward that it was just Oswald and Oswald alone and he shot three shots from the book depository? No, absolutely not. No. How can you? No. no. I think at that point they hadn't the Zapruder film hadn't been released. So they weren't expecting that someone actually had actual footage, which kind of blows that theory out of the water. In November 1964, two months after the publication of its 888-page report, the Commission published 26 volumes of supporting documents, including the testimony or depositions of 552 witnesses and more than 3,100 exhibits. All of the Commission's records were then transferred on November the 23rd to the National Archives. The unpublished portion of those records were initially sealed for 75 years, which takes us to 2039, mm -hmm. under the general national archives policy that applied to all federal investigations by the executive branch of government. A period, and I quote, intended to serve as protection for innocent persons who could otherwise be damaged because of their relationship with participants in the case. The 75-year rule no longer exists. It was supplanted by the Freedom of Information Act of 1966 and the JFK Records Act of 1992. 
So how's that? Mm. The 75-year rule that some people decided was a good idea, they've gone, no, actually, that's, um, that's, that, that's bullshit. And there's actually now a JFK Records Act of 1992. They, they voted in an act just for this, for this case. Yeah, right. By 1992, 98% of the Warren Commission records had been released to the public. Six years later, after the Assassination Records Review Board's work, all Warren Commission records, except those records that contained tax return information, were available to the public with redactions. So, what would be one reason to have a rule where we can't read anything for 75 years? Um, I assume because most people that would, well, I'd say everyone that's involved in anything on those records would be dead. Correct. Exactly right. That would, that's, I mean, I mean, that might be a cynical view, but that on the surface, that's the only thing you can think of, right? Yeah. Yep. And we'll end with this. The remaining Kennedy assassination related documents were partly released to the public on the 26th of October, 2017. 25 years after the passage of the JFK Records Act, President Donald Trump, as directed by the FBI and CIA, took action on that date to withhold certain remaining files, delaying the release until April the 26th, 2018. Then, on April 26, 2018, took action to further withhold the records until 2021. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's story. If you've enjoyed what you're hearing and you're enjoying the podcast so far, we would greatly appreciate your feedback. Whilst we're forever grateful for all the listeners that have taken the time to subscribe, rate and review the podcast so far, if you're listening to this right now and you're enjoying what you're hearing, please take a minute to leave us a five-star review. Your feedback is very much valued. Thank you again. Until next week. Thanks again for dropping in. We hope you'll make this a weekly visit. And hope we bring the family home. You've enjoyed the evening as much as we've enjoyed having you here. Carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night now.